willkommen in Berlin. Hello and welcome to Berlin. This is City Breaks Berlin, Episode 8. I'm Marion Jones. City Breaks is history and culture for City Break fans. My take on the stories behind the sites that you're likely to visit in these lovely cities that I've chosen. So here we are, eight episodes into the Berlin series, and finally we've come to the Berlin Wall. That construction which for 28 years divided Berlin into, divided Germany into, symbolised the division of Europe, perhaps even the division of the free world from the rest of the world. Such a fascinating story, which I'll be telling in this episode. What happened? Why did it happen? What were the effects? And particularly then, where are the places in Berlin today you should go to if you want to find out more? I've got three to mention. The Berlin Wall Memorial Site, the Checkpoint Charlie Site along with its museum, and the East Side Gallery. But first, a little context. How did it ever come to building a wall? OK, so think of Germany just after World War II, divided into four, each supervised by one of the main Allied powers, so the US, Britain, France and Russia. And Berlin then lay in the Russian sector. But the other three powers were nervous about the Russian having such a prize, so it was agreed that Berlin too be divided into four sectors, French, British, American, Russian. And that's how it was in the first years after the war. But it became increasingly clear that the Soviet sector was peeling off, was becoming different from the other three. There were plenty of people who perhaps lived in the Soviet sector and worked in one of the others, or the other way around. But gradually, gradually, young people particularly were more drawn to the Western sectors. There was an uprising in 1953. In the Russian sector, people were wanting more democracy, which was brutally crushed by Soviet tanks. And so more and more people are starting to wonder what is going to happen. In June 1961, Walter Ulbricht, politician in the Eastern sector, made a statement which has been much quoted ever since. Niemand, he said, nobody, hat die Absicht, intends, eine Mauer zu bauen, to build a wall. Sort of giving away, really, that that word wall was firmly in his mind, and in retrospect at least, an obvious sign of what was going to happen. By early August in the same year, there were more signs that things were going to happen. The S-Bahn, the city train, was suddenly no longer allowed to travel from east to west. It would be stopped at the edge of the Russian sector. People got out. If you were a West Berliner, you could carry on on foot and go into the west. If you lived in the eastern part of the city, you were sent back. But even though the warning signs were there, what happened on the 13th of August 1961 came, I think, as a terrible shock to almost everybody. So just towards midnight, 400 trucks arrived from the East German countryside, full of troops equipped with the wherewithal to put up a barbed wire fence, right down the middle of the city, sectioning off the Soviet sector. A fait accompli, if you will. Of course, there were protests at the Brandenburg Gate, for example. People were photographed pulling others through. And over the next few days, some 25,000 people saw what was coming cross the border. Many of them, incidentally, were soldiers and border guards. But within days, they began building a concrete wall alongside the barbed wire fence, strengthening it, adding a stretch of no man's land alongside it, on the eastern side to make it even harder to get over. It was floodlit. There were watchtowers. 
there were electric fences. No wonder that it soon became known as the Death Strip. Work continued to cut off the S-Bahn and the U-Bahn lines which crossed the city, and pretty soon East Berlin was sectioned off, a completely separate part from West Berlin, and so it remained for the following 28 years. So, where did the wall actually go? Well, basically it cut through the centre of the city from north to south, leaving places like Unter den Linden with all its lovely Baroque architecture in the east, leaving the Tiergarten and the Kefürstendamm in the west, slicing the Potsdamer Platz, which was the heart of old Berlin, in two, the wall actually went down the middle of it, and it ran along certain roads, the most notable one being Bernauer Straße, which was left in the French sector, but where the houses on one side of the road were in the Soviet sector. And the wall also ran right past the Brandenburg Gate, leaving that in no man's land. Some of the maps you can buy do plot the path of the wall, and I think it's worth having one of those if you can. In the early days after the wall came down, you could just tell whether you were in the former east or the former west, but as the two halves have grown together in the last 30 plus years, that's become more difficult. So to have a map which shows you is, I think, interesting. There were some famous crossing points. Checkpoint Charlie, I think, is the most famous. That was actually originally known as the third Allied checkpoint, labelled C because that's the third letter of the alphabet. Hence, Checkpoint Charlie. A gateway for foreigners who had the right paperwork, maybe diplomats, that sort of person. Perhaps most famous for the terrifying standoff which took place there in autumn 61, so just a couple of months after the war went up, when American and Soviet tanks lined up facing each other with live ammunition on board and orders to fire if you're fired at. I'll come back to that story when I'm talking in a minute about the Checkpoint Charlie Museum. Another border crossing point was at a station just up the road from Checkpoint Charlie, the Friedrichstrasse station because there too, West Germans who had the right paperwork were allowed to enter East Berlin. So perhaps they would get permission to go in and visit relatives. And then, of course, when they came out again, the relatives would come with them just this far, because they weren't allowed any further, to say their farewells. And for that reason, the station became known as the Palace of Tears, Tränenpalast in German, because of all the partings that took place there. I think that even when the wall was in existence, it was hard to grasp it unless you saw it, that there could be such a thing in Europe. And I found a good description of this by the writer Rory MacLean in his introduction to a book called Berlin, Imagine a City, where he's writing about, as a teenager, as he puts it, a lifetime ago, I think he probably means in the 1970s, he went on a trip to Europe, up the Eiffel Tower, along the Spanish steps in Rome, etc., and then got to Berlin, and this is what he wrote. On the last week of the holiday, I saw the wall. The sight of the heinous barrier shook me to my core. At the heart of the continent were watchtowers, barbed wire and border guards instructed to shoot fellow citizens who wanted to live under a different government. And then he goes on to describe crossing the border into East Berlin. He'd obviously had permission to do that, which you could get. I did the same, probably roughly at the same time. Anyway, this is what he wrote. I surrendered my passport to an armed, buttoned-up officer, paid for a visa, and stood in the drizzle under the gaze of a Volksarmee lieutenant, dressed in field grey. He carried a loaded rifle. Beyond his squat lookout post, the doors of the surrounding buildings had been bricked up. 
the entrances to underground stations were sealed. Along Friedrichstraße, once the bustling Fleet Street of Berlin, stretched a bleak and narrow transit route of flat, concrete-rendered facades from which residents and memories had been sucked away. The effects on ordinary families of suddenly finding themselves marooned in different parts of the city and unable to cross over to see each other were described by lots of different writers. For example, Barney Spanner-White in Berlin's Story of a City, who saw a bride still in her white wedding gown, standing on one side of the fence, the western side, and, quote, waving to her mother and father, who were standing approximately 100 metres on the other side of the barriers, guarded by indifferent and aggressive-looking border guards. The parents were hindered from attending the wedding of their daughter. The writer Ian Walker describes going along to the Potsdamer Platz, where there were wooden platforms, viewing platforms, on the western side that people could climb up and look over into East Berlin, used perhaps sometimes out of curiosity, but sometimes also for very emotional reasons. Listen to this. Newborn babies would be held aloft on the platforms. The parents would cup their hands round their mouths and shout out the names of their babies to the grandparents, who would shout the names back and smile and weep and sometimes try and take photographs with a telephoto lens. And almost immediately, the escape attempts began. I just mentioned Bernauerstrasse, which straddled the border, so you could walk through the houses there from the eastern sector into the west. But almost immediately, East German guards came along and blocked up the ground floor doors and windows. So what happened next was that people would still go into the houses, go up to the first floor and lower themselves down from the windows into the west. And, of course, people died in the attempt. There are plaques in the pavement all along Bernauerstrasse remembering those people. One from the 19th of August, so just six days after the war went up, Rudolf Urban, and a couple of days later, the 22nd of August, Ida Zikaman, who was 59. Both of them fell to their deaths, trying to escape. One escape attempt from August 1962, which took place just along the road from Checkpoint Charlie, hit the headlines all over the world because photographers happened to be there to witness what happened. There were two young men, Peter Fechter and his friend Helmut Kuhlbeich, who lived in the East, were building workers, I think, but had family in the West and decided they were going to escape. So they climbed up to a first floor room, waited for a moment when they thought the guard's attention was distracted and jumped down into the death strip. One made it out, but the other, Peter Fechter, was shot and wounded, then lay on the ground and bled to death as the East German guards watched. It is thought that there were about 5,000 successful attempts to escape, at least 5,000 more people arrested trying to do so, and well over a 100 people, like Peter Fechter, shot and killed in the attempt. Much of this was not well documented in the West at the time, but another thing which did hit the headlines all over the world was the visit by President Kennedy to Berlin in 1963, where on the 26th of June he stood in front of one of the city's town halls and made a famous speech. 300,000 people were there to hear him, and he gave it to them straight. Quote, There are many people in the world who really don't understand, or say they don't, what is the great issue between the free world and the communist world. Let them come to Berlin. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin, and therefore, as a free man, 
I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner, which means I'm a Berliner. I'm with you. I'm one of you. Although, as you may have heard, the German didn't come out quite right, because if you put the Ein in that sentence, you're actually not saying you are a person from Berlin. You are saying you're one of those Berlin speciality donuts. But the meaning was clear, and everybody knew it was no laughing matter. In Berlin, the story of a city, Barney Weitzpanner comments quite crisply about something which happened a week later. Khrushchev, so that's the Russian leader, Khrushchev visited East Berlin a week later and made a worthy speech about creating a single socialist state in Germany. It failed to have quite the same impact. But, as already stated, this terrible situation lasted for 28 years. And when it did finally come to an end, that too took everybody by surprise. There was a bit of a change of mood in the 1980s. Gorbachev was in power in Russia. Borders in other countries were loosening a little bit. It was well known to East Germans, for example. If you went to Hungary, you could get out of Eastern Europe from their borders. But still, I think it's true to say that nobody saw how quickly the whole thing would collapse. There were demonstrations in East Berlin in the late 1980s, culminating in an absolutely massive one at Alexanderplatz on the 4th of November 1989. Thousands and thousands of people congregating, demanding more democracy, lots of speeches from well-known East German writers, scenes which would have been unthinkable a few years earlier. But even then, I don't think anyone saw it coming. And just five days later, on the 9th of November, there was the famous press conference. Live on television, a government minister, one Gunter Schabowski, presumably trying to calm things down, announced that travel restrictions in and out of East Germany were going to be ended. When a reporter asked him when that would be, he shuffled a bit, looked at his notes, which didn't seem to tell him, and said, well, as far as I know, immediately. That was it. Berliners from both sides of the wall rushed towards it, desperate to know if it was really true. And while the border guards looked on, unsure what to do, people chipped away at the wall, they danced on top of it, as soon as they could, they rushed over, and East and West Germans greeted each other in jubilation. John Simpson, the veteran BBC journalist, was there, and he wrote about it in his book, Strange Places, Questionable People. Quote, there was a sudden upsurge of shouting and cheering, as we realised that someone was trying to break through from the other side. At last, by alternate strokes from East and West, another wound appeared in the wall. In the candlelight, a hand came through the little gap and waved about, and the man with the pickaxe on our side grasped it and shook it. I had never thought anything of the kind was possible. This wasn't a phony miracle, like Shabosky's announcement. It was the real thing. There are some very moving accounts by other people who were there at the time, none more moving, I think, than the words of the cellist Ostropovich, who was watching it all in his Paris flat on television, and was so, as he put it, seized with joy that he immediately flew to Berlin, telling a friend, I want to play and say a prayer of gratitude to God. He landed at the airport, he got a taxi into the centre, carrying his cello, and then suddenly realised that if he was going to play, he was going to need a chair. So, quote, we went into the Springer building, and I said to the doorman on reception, Excuse me, I need a chair for half an hour. I promise to bring it back. He was a very nice doorman. He recognised me and shouted out, Ah, 
you're Rostropovich, of course you can have a chair. He goes on to describe carrying the chair and the cello down towards the wall, 20 people or so following him, and, quote, I can still remember there was a picture of Mickey Mouse painted on the wall. I played a Bach Sarabande suite, a serious memorial piece. There weren't many people there, thank God. A young man was standing next to me with tears running down his face. I was very happy. After a while, we got another taxi and drove to the airport. Then we drank a bottle of champagne and flew back to Paris. Jan Morris, the travel writer and journalist, was there too, and she described how liberty is in the very air of Berlin now. Quote, it is good to be alive here, and to be young must be heaven. Everything is in flux. Everything is changing. New horizons open, and nothing demands unqualified respect or allegiance. Although half of Berlin is the theoretical headquarters of the about-to-be-disbanded and thoroughly discredited People's Republic of East Germany, the city is not really the headquarters of anything much, and this gives it a stimulating sense of irresponsibility. She goes on to describe that there was partying, there was laughing, people strutting about, kissing each other, kissing strangers, just delirious with joy. Just a few weeks later at Christmas, Leonard Bernstein conducted two concerts, one in West Berlin, which ended at midnight on December the 23rd, the very moment that the Berlin Wall became permanently open, and a second one two days later on Christmas morning in East Berlin. The orchestra was international. Musicians from the four countries which had occupied Berlin, France, the UK, the US, the Soviet Union, and centre of the programme, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, with one small but highly significant change. So instead of the Ode to Joy sung in the final movement normally, Bernstein changed the wording very slightly. Instead of Andy Freude, Ode to Joy, it became Andy Freiheit, Ode to Freedom. And it was sung by a group of singers from two leading choirs, one East German and one West. Thousands gathered at the Brandenburg Gate to watch a broadcast version of the concert. It was relayed too all over East and West Berlin, the first television event to be transmitted to both halves for more than 30 years. So momentous from start to finish. And now to the three places in Berlin which I've picked out that you can visit to learn much, much more about this story. The first one is the Gedenkstätte Bernauerstrasse, so the memorial site on Bernauerstrasse, the street that was half east and half west when the wall went up. And then I'd like to come to Checkpoint Charlie and the museum nearby, which I think might be the most enjoyable museum in the whole of Berlin. And thirdly then, the East Side Gallery, which is another place in Berlin where bits of the wall remain and where they've done something rather unusual with it. So then, the Gedenkstätte, the memorial site. If you want to go there, the easiest thing is probably to take the S-Bahn to Nordbahnhof, because if you get out there, you'll be right by the documentation centre, which is the sort of museum section, and then poised to walk along the path of the wall, some of which is still there to be seen, where there are lots of information panels explaining everything you want to know. If you go right along to the other end of the site, you'll arrive at the U-Bahn station, Bernauerstrasse. I think in total it's a walk of about 1.4 kilometres. But if you're going to stop and look at the information panels and everything there is to see, then you need to allow a bit longer than you normally would for a walk of that length. 
The panels tell in detail how the border strip was constructed, all about no man's land and the blocking up of the houses, the alarms that were set in, the anti-vehicle devices, the dogs, the surveillance devices, etc. And they tell too in some detail about many of the escape attempts made here. For example, in February 1962, how the border patrolman Egon Zed knocked out his boss and then ran with his sister and a friend to the wall, tore down the barbed wire, used a chair to climb over. Then there were the Knittel family who decided on August the 19th, so just six days after the wall went up, that they were going to jump from their second floor window into the west. They had alerted the West Berlin Fire Brigade, who were waiting for them with a net to catch them, the two parents and their three-year-old daughter. Mum was heavily pregnant and their second daughter was born just three days later in the West. There are stories too of the various tunnels which were dug here, one of which allowed about 90 people to escape. But they're very careful too to record how many people died in the attempt. It says on a panel here that between 1961 and 1989 at least 136 people died trying to cross the wall because they were shot or they were fatally injured in the attempt and 42 of them were children. A second unmissable site to visit is Checkpoint Charlie itself, both because you can see the fascinating area and also because there's a really good museum there called the House am Checkpoint Charlie. So in the road around the checkpoint there are lots of information panels, again telling the history, yes, of the division of Berlin, but widening it out too to the division of Germany. Quotes from politicians, there's Churchill for example, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Yes, it was indeed Churchill, amongst many other talents, an incredible wordsmith, who first coined the phrase the Iron Curtain. On these panels too, you can learn about how the wall went up, what it meant for the people living in Berlin, there are quotes from Kennedy's speech, an explanation of the Checkpoint Charlie standoff I referred to a few minutes ago, East German border guards apparently tried to carry out checks on US troops coming across, which was not what had been agreed. So the Americans sent tanks. Soviets responded. They sent tanks too. There was a 16-hour face-off, watched it seemed by the entire world, who knew that both sides had been ordered to fire if they were fired at, and that they were in possession of live ammunition. And then it explains too that there was eventually, thankfully, a diplomatic solution. Kennedy's quoted here too, of course, and then there are other panels widening out the information and explaining about the rest of the Cold War in Vietnam, in Czechoslovakia, in Poland, the invasion of Afghanistan. So putting the whole thing into context before explaining finally how the fall of the wall came about and Berlin, after its 28-year hiatus, became capital of Germany once again. So you can read as much or as little of that as you like, You can also look at the more striking things, the famous signs that you've probably seen, which read Checkpoint Charlie and say in three languages, you are leaving the American sector. And just metres away also is the Peter Fechte Memorial, so the memorial to the young man shot trying to escape. It's a plain metal column giving his name, Peter Fechte, his dates, 1944 to 1962, and a single sentence reading, Er wollte nur die Freiheit. He simply wanted freedom. And right there on the crossroads where the checkpoint is, the museum, the Haus am Checkpoint Charlie, 
possibly my favourite museum in the whole of Berlin. The building itself is significant because it was just across the border in the western half. It was a house used by people known as Fluchthelfer, so those who helped others to escape and who kept a watch on the border crossing. Inside, the story is told very well, right from the destruction of Berlin after the war to its rebuilding, the blockade which proved that the Soviets were trying to seal off East Berlin, and the Luftbrücke, the rescue operation run by the American and British pilots, who delivered all the supplies West Berlin needed for months. And the story of the war. It's going up, its effects, it's coming down. And most graphically, I think for me, some of these standout stories about the people who tried to escape. Because this building was so close to the border, they were given lots of things that people had used in their attempts. And you can see just amazing things like a suitcase and a loudspeaker box, in both of which somebody hid themselves as she curled up inside, so they could be loaded onto a vehicle and hopefully carried across without being noticed. There are cars which were adapted so a body could be draped underneath or, can you believe, inside where the engine goes. There are hot air balloons and hang gliders, mini submarines, information about the tunnels people dug. Just a really detailed picture of how people tried to escape as they put it in the museum, underground, overland and by air. Loads of documents and photos too, but it's the realia, the actual things you can look at, that stick in the mind. It's one of those museums you can actually take teenagers to and not have them say, how long are we staying? There's also, incidentally, a whole other section of the museum on non-violent struggles for human rights across the world. Cases like Gandhi in India or Lech Walesa in Poland. So it's a museum you can take at your own level. You can either just do the graphic highlights of escapes and the general drama of the war, or you can take a bit longer and consider the wider issues and the whole thing in its global context. And my third suggestion would be to visit the East Side Gallery, which is a walkway along the River Spree, where quite a lot of the wall still remains, and which, after the fall of the wall, was turned into a sort of impromptu art gallery, when artists from Germany certainly, but actually from lots of other countries, arrived and painted on the bits of wall that were left their responses to what had happened. The nearest U-Bahn station is Warschauer Straße, which is the final station on the eastern end of both the U1 and the U3 lines, so quite easy to get to. And the walkway is just over a kilometre long. I think it's 1.3 kilometres, in fact. A really interesting stroll past all sorts of very colourful slogans and pictures. Most are in German, some are in English too, and the slogans say things like I painted over the wall of shame, so freedom is ashamed no more. Then there's another one with a quotation on it, which you may have seen in other contexts. The one about politics being the continuation of war by other means. And also others, which again set the whole thing in a wider context. So one reads, Es gibt viele Mauern abzubauen. There are lots of walls which need to be torn down. But it's probably the pictures which will stick in your memory. To name just a few of many, there's one showing two doves of peace flying along and carrying between them a little model of the Brandenburg Gate. Bear in mind these were painted in the very early days in 1989-1990, and now that we're again in a period of watching rumblings in Eastern Europe, it might strike you as over-optimistic that the fall of the wall brought peace to Berlin, to Germany, 
to the whole of Europe. Another very memorable painting, which you often see illustrating articles on the topic of Berlin or the East Side Gallery, is a picture of two politicians, Brezhnev, the Soviet, and Honecker, who led the East German government for many years right up to the fall of the wall, kissing and captioned with the following words, Mein Gott, hilft mir, my God, help me, diese tödliche Liebe zu überleben, to survive this fatal love. I think my favourite might be a large blue background with the wall running horizontally across the picture and a cartoon version of a trabi, so the East German car that was such a symbol of the regime. You could have one if you did everything the authorities told you for years on end and waited on a long list for several years. The trabi was always a symbol of freedom in East Germany because if you got one it did mean you could travel more, maybe even into other East European countries. And here, the trabi, symbol of freedom, is breaking through the wall. And if it's possible for a car to look jubilant, then this one most certainly does. You won't remember all the details, although I think if you walk along it, you won't be able to resist taking lots of photos. But a stroll along the east side gallery is a great way to see bits of the wall that are left and to sense that feeling of celebration that came over almost all of Berlin at least in the very early days before the problems of merging two such different parts of the city back together became the new reality. So I think that about wraps things up for today's episode. I hope I've covered all the main points about the wall itself and the places where you can learn more about it. One thing I haven't really mentioned, which in fact is going to be the subject of the next episode, and that is what was life like behind the wall? in the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, or the DDR as it was known in German, the Deutsche Demokratische Republik. I've done some reading, I've found some interesting extracts by people who were there at the time, and I've visited, I think it was three museums, which will tell you everything you might want to know about that long-lost country that doesn't exist anymore. Everything from what was daily life really like there, to the super sinister aspects of the Stasi, That's the euphemistically named state security operation, which regulated and snooped into the lives of its citizens in ways that you can hardly believe. All of this happening in what is now Western Europe just 30 years ago. So, another fascinating story, for which I hope you will join me. Please do remember that there are blog entries to go with every episode from now on, with a written summary of the episode, reading ideas, links to all the places I've mentioned, Hopefully lots of useful stuff, so do go and have a look at those if you haven't been in the habit of doing so. The Berlin ones are being written as we go along, and I have embarked on a catch-up project starting with Paris, so adding in blog posts to go along with every episode from that series. Comments, as ever, super welcome, whether on the blog, on the podcasts, or on City Breaks in general. You can leave a podcast review in all the usual places. You can comment on the blog. Or indeed, you can email us, the address being citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk. So, das ist es, as the Germans say. So, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören. And goodbye until, hopefully at least, next time. In German, that would be something like, bis das nächste Mal, auf Wiederhören. Although I've heard lots of Germans actually just saying bye-bye. (laughs) 